Let it be, let it be. Thank you, Laura, appreciate that. If, as if you hadn't guessed, that is the title of our new series, Let It Be. Certainly want to welcome each one of you here today in the room and, of course, online. Just appreciate so much you taking this time. And it's our prayer, it's our hope, as we know and trust in a God who's going to honor that time because we've given him this time today. And so we know that he's going to continue to walk through, work through, help each one of us during this time to speak to us in the ways that he would want to. So the new series, Let It Be, Let It Be, um, really it's all about being like Jesus. And that's our desire. If you've been here very long at all, you know that that's our desire in actions and in words and plans, but also in attitude. Having an attitude that really blesses people and we ourselves then are blessed as well. And that's really what these Beatitudes we're going to look at today are all about, about blessing, about looking at something, how we can be different than Jesus. And surely it's a great Beatles song, and, you know, Jesus is going to be whispering words. The Spirit is constantly speaking to us words of wisdom so that we will understand what it means to be his disciples, living in a kingdom that is different than this world. And so today we're going to pick those Beatitudes up, commonly called in Matthew 5, which were really the first words that Jesus taught in the New Testament in his ministry. And so we're going to pick those up. But as we begin today, I just want to share with you a few things, kind of pick up a little bit of my story before a few of you after last time were tired of the G-Dog thing and all the other stuff. So I wanted to kind of pick up in my ministry life. I talked about a lot of personal stuff. And so I want to share with you a picture of me as a freshman in college. Cincinnati Bible College, there he is. I thought, it, I thought it was fitting for today because it's got all the let it be vibe all over it. I mean, come on, dude, this is so cool and real. You know, it was beautiful. So I thought I had to share that. You know, as a freshman in college, you don't know what's going on. You just, you just go with the tide, and that was the tide of the day, you know, the bell bottom. I was a little past, a little later than that, but still. And the fro, I was probably a few years behind that. But, you know, it was cool. I liked it. I did that. Obviously, uh, I've receded a little bit in my hair over the years, but that's been a lot of years. You know, the beauty was, though, four years later, as planned, I actually graduated uh, from Cincinnati Bible College, and it was a great time. Had an opportunity at that point uh, to do several things in my life. I was given an opportunity to work full-time there at the school at the time, and so I went ahead and took that up uh, position as postal communications director, the mail mailroom dude. Anyways, I had a nice little title to it because we, I was actually when we were doing some, if you know anything about CBC history, actually when we were moving into the new building, President's Hall at that time, moving the old mailroom that had been down the basement of one of the old grungy old buildings for... 80 years at that point or whatever, we moved over to New Bill. So we had a chance to get a new name, new fresh look, all the stuff. So I had the beauty of doing that. Along with that, though, then I had the opportunity of preparing for my master's degree. And so I did that as well, as well as doing junior high ministry at White Oak Christian Church during those years where I had gone to church as a high schooler as well. So it was a beautiful, beautiful era, had a lovely time. Then went into student ministry for about 14 years uh, through Pittsburgh, Fairfield, right here in Cincinnati, and then also in Lexington before we moved out to California. So that was the beginning of my ministry years. Today, I want us to take a few moments and we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry years and really what those were about and how we really get into our theme and our series that we're talking about, Let It Be. Perhaps some of you have heard the term before, scary good. 
Generally, it's in relationship to athletics and athletes. Perhaps if you have someone who you're a big fan of, an athlete, there's probably a good chance that sometime during their career, if they're worth being a fan of, if they're any good, they've been called scary good. You know, perhaps some people, Mike Tyson may come to mind. Mike obviously backed up the image in the ring by being one of the greatest fighters of all time. We won't mention what he's most noted for about biting off ears and all this other stuff, but still, he was scary good in many ways. Dick Buckus of the Chicago Bears, do I need to say any more? Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, yeah, of course. He was so good, it was scary, and that's where the term comes from. The list goes on and on. Maybe it's Shaq for you, maybe it's Brady. I don't know who it is. Put your favorite player in there, but there's a great chance that they've been called scary good. You know, there was one Duke player several years back that was noted as scary good, and actually a commentator uh, said these words about him and put this article up right before the NBA draft, and he said, the Orlando Magic would be a scary good team with Jabari Parker. Well, if any of you followed the scene, you know Jabari Wynn had an accident, um, some health issues, has gone out of the league, he's looking to play overseas now, but it didn't end up very good, but it was scary good at the time. And I think if you know what I'm talking about, any profession, any profession is true. There are just those people who are scary good. You know the ones. They're just so smart. They're so good at what they do. They, they don't even have to work at it. I mean, doesn't that just make you sick? For the rest of us who have to do so much to get to that same level, and they just do it with ease, like there's no effort involved. We stand back in amazement, thinking, man, that person is so good. We know in the first century, there was a man that was thought to be scary good. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I like to share some of the things that people said about him. Who is this man? Where did he get this wisdom? They were amazed at his understanding. Even the winds and the waves obey him. They marveled when they heard him speak. People were astonished at his teaching. Where did he get these mighty words? They were surprised at his answers, and they were shocked at his ability to bring healing. You see, the contemporaries of Jesus Christ understood the phrase, Gary Good. They had never seen anyone like this Jesus. They had never heard anyone teach with the authority that he taught. Jesus was born. He changed everything. When God came to earth in the form of man, it changed it all. We know the accounts that the gospel writers give, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all speak about Jesus' birth. But then they pretty much fast forward to later in his life, to his ministry years. And so I over the years, many times, maybe you have thought too, like what, what happened during those, <clears throat> excuse me, those early years of Jesus? What was going on in his life? Perhaps what model was Jesus' first donkey that he rode? Oh, but, oh yeah, it took a little time, sorry about that. Or those sibling rivalries, have you ever thought about that? Like Mary saying, come on dudes, can't you just be like your brother, perfect, you know, Jesus? That would be something to live up to, wouldn't it? I mean, and on and on. Can you imagine if you ever went through a hipster stage or drank fair coffee or had a goatee or all those things that we just don't know anything about because they're not recorded for us? 
But what does matter is that from age 30 to 33, only three years, less than one term in office, he changed the world forever. Which brings us to the Sermon on the Mount today, Matthew chapter 5, the first public teaching that Jesus gives of his ministry. And as many of you know, shortly after he was tempted, prepared, and then brought, this was where he landed on the Sermon on the Mount, to give a great teaching, an understanding, an introductory, if you would, of what it means to follow him and who he was and what was going to happen. And so that Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes, as we commonly call them. Really, the prescription of what the word is talking about, blessed, can many times be translated and has been in many versions of the Bible, translations of the Bible, as happy. But as we look at this, I want us to be aware of when we talk about or use the word happy interchangeably with this deeper word blessed, that we're really talking about something very different. And I put a definition here for you to look at. Happiness is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstances, but rather a supernatural experience of contentment. True satisfaction is only based on the fact that one's life is right with God. One's life is right with God. Everyone is looking for happiness. And haven't we always been looking for happiness? I mean, our Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, thank you, pursuit of happiness. So what is this happiness? that we are pursuing. What does it mean to be happy? You know, we sing many songs, and if you think back, as I think back over the decades, all the different songs, even though Let It Be is a beautiful song, I think of one that is most profound, deeply profound when it comes to the subject of being happy. Perhaps you know it too. Perhaps you've heard it. I'm not going to try and sing it to you, but it's simply, don't worry, be happy. Now, that is some serious, profound ways to find happiness, if I've ever heard of them before. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, come on, cheer up, be happy, just be happy, when you don't feel like it? Thank you, I appreciate that very much. You know, there are many things that we do in life that uh, can create happiness. Many focuses that we give to happiness, and many times we think happiness is necessarily connected to our circumstances. And if you think about it, many times they are. If things are going well, if your day is looking good, then you're feeling pretty happy. And the opposite is true, too. If things aren't going well, and it's stressful, and it's hard for the kids in the morning, and all the stuff, then it seems as though it's almost the opposite many times. But happiness, as we said a few moments ago, is not found in our circumstances. Hopefully we'll be one and done. I have always been intrigued, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, I'm sure you have, by those bars that serve, and I don't ever go to bars, so excuse me for saying it like that, but... <clears throat> I've not been intrigued by bars. I've been intrigued by bars that serve these drinks at discounted prices, and they call it happy hour, happy hour, which only makes me think and reinforce some of the things that I'm saying here. 
Maybe happiness in that form is only short-lived for a short amount of time at a certain place. Often, we know that's true because we can find happiness, many people do, in a new car or a new toy or the latest electronic gadget. Many ways to find happiness. And I think if we were to be really honest this morning and look around in our world, one of the greatest ways that people pursue happiness is through the pursuit of monetary gain. It's through money. And yet it amazes me when people have tons of money, what happens to them. I don't know if you follow a lottery winners or generally gist of their lives and what happens with most lottery winners. But I just want to share you one brief story with you this morning. It's a sad example of very many others. Five years after Kentucky resident David Lee Edwards won $27 million in his jackpot, five years later, he was penniless living in a storage unit with his wife. They, the couple squandered their fortune on all the typical goodies that sink so many lottery winners. They bought a dozen of high-end cars. They bought a mansion, a plane, all the stuff. They blew through millions in the first several months. Blew through 12 more in the next few months. Just 12 years after he had won the money, changed the course of his life, David Lee Edwards died alone and broke in hospice care at the age of 58. I think back to a, another gentleman, the richest and perhaps wisest man, whoever walked the earth, Solomon. When we read about Solomon, it talks about the amounts of gold and jewels that he had, the vast amounts of gold and jewels. It said that silver was as common to him as the stones in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. The Bible also says that he had fleets of ships, stables filled with most beautiful horses. He ate the most scrumptious food on the finest of tableware in the most elegant of palaces with the most distinguished of people. He was acclaimed throughout the world for his wealth, for his fame and wisdom. And yet Solomon, when he looked back at all of this, this is what he said. One day I looked at all that my hands had produced and I realized that all was emptiness, that all was emptiness. Not even he could find happiness in riches. You know, typically, when we purchase something, unless you're a man, you read the owner's instructions and you figure out how to put it together or how it operates. But something for us men, there's just something that's counterintuitive that goes against that. We like to experience, we like to explore, we like to figure it out. Oh, we know how to, all those things. I've been there, I've done that many years of home repairs and all this stuff. I get it. All the useless time. <laughs> that I just like spending because I think I can figure it out on my own without reading the instructions. Well, for each of us in life, if we want to find true happiness, I believe that we must look to the instruction manual and quit wasting a lot of extra time and energy. And I believe that by doing that, in fact, today, by looking at these Beatitudes in the weeks ahead, it's going to set us up on a highway that will lead to true happiness for each one of us. Because these manufacturers' instructions for us about happiness are God's definition of how to be happy. And it's different than the world's. Go figure that. So I'd encourage you, I just want to challenge you, each one of us, over these next eight weeks as we go through this series, 
each week just to read through the Beatitudes just a couple times. And by the time we come to the end, I'm sure that we will have committed them to memory. And they'll help us on pursuing more godly and blessed, happier life. So let's pick up today, Matthew 5, the very first two verses. Matthew begins to speak and talking about Jesus, he says here, and now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach. So as it first appears, Jesus, as usually, draws a crowd. And so it appears as though he's getting ready to speak a sermon that is to thousands of people, the multitudes. But as we look a little further in his words, what he's saying here is what is going on is he's calling his disciples around him. Those who are learning and being trained to follow him, King Jesus, who want to understand what it means to orient the rhythms and the habits of their daily lives so they can look more like Jesus. Now, this isn't just another set of Ten Commandments for us, but rather these are suggestions, guidelines of how to live a happier and a holier life by following what Jesus tells us, by incorporating, by implementing these on a daily basis. <clears throat> so again, we see Jesus' plan here was to train, was to teach his disciples, those closest to him. And then in time, they would share and share, continue to share in their relationships of their lives to the multitudes. The same plan is disciples making disciples making disciples. And so Jesus begins with the core, his disciples, you and I today, those who yearn to follow after him and be more like him. And so I believe the very first step we see here is that we must see ourselves as we really are. That's a starting point in almost any journey. If you've ever been on any recovery, anything in life, the beginning, the first step is always about seeing ourselves as we really are. And so verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now you can just imagine if today in our culture we were to write a set of Beatitudes what they may look like or what they may sound like. Blessed or happy are the rich. Blessed or happy are the successful. Blessed or happy are the smart and beautiful. For you see, my friends, those are the things that as a culture we value and that we think will make us happy. And so those are the things that we would list. But Jesus starts in a totally different way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, many times... People take this in a wrong way or interpret it wrongly because it has nothing to do with our economic situation. And I've heard people say it, blessed are the poor. Well, yes, Jesus speaks of the poor often and that they will always be among us. But what he's saying here has nothing to do with our economic situation. My friends, it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy, whether you're middle class, or whether you have no money at all to your name. He's not speaking of that, but something of much greater value, our spiritual condition, our spiritual condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the word here in the Greek really actually is signifying 
someone who, who cringes back, who shrinks down, a person who is destitute, who is destitute in the world around them, dependent on others for everything, for complete livelihood. And thus, when Jesus would speak these words in his day, automatically people would think of that beggar on the side of the street, <clears throat> that beggar that was at the temple doors. Those people who are completely destitute in life. And he was translating that to a spiritual condition, helping us to see that apart from God, we too are destitute. And that's hard to see sometimes, to see ourselves as helpless, as hopeless, as lost. But my friends, that's the place we really are. Without Jesus Christ in our lives, we have no hope. We are destitute. And honestly speaking, that's very hard for all of us to get our minds around because that word, that situation has not been common in our lives to most of us. And so Jesus is trying to help his people, his disciples, you and I, understand the destitute situation we have to be in, the total reliance we must have upon him, the dependence that must be in our lives to follow after him. <clears throat> now I have a friend who uh, works in a homeless ministry and has related it to say, basically without Christ, we are all bums. We are destitute spiritually. And if we want to experience personal happiness in our lives, then we have got to start at the very beginning. We must see ourselves as we really are and who we really are without Christ. You see, there is much said about self-confidence these days and the need for self-esteem, and that is so important in order to make it in this life. But even more importantly, I believe today we need to have some God-esteem. We need to realize that when we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. That when we realize that we are poor in spirit, thank you, and unable to do it on our own without him in our lives, then he will show up. And truly happiness and blessedness will take place in our lives. We must come to that place where we see that the only reason that I'm of any value at all has nothing to do with Jess Atkins and everything to do with Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to. And that's a hard place, my friend. That is a hard place. I mean, I'm a self-made man like many of you. That's our culture. That's the way we've been raised, especially on the West side. We're going to take care of things, take care of ourselves and do and get through it. That is a hard place to be where we have got to realize utter dependence is on Jesus Christ. That's the only way we have value and will be blessed and be happy and move forward and will help others to do the same as we share that hope and that love. So once we've exhausted all these other means, we've been beaten up by this world enough and worn down on this journey, sometimes then we come to this place of becoming poor in spirit. Not easy to get to, but I encourage us to consider coming to that place. Because you see, when we're in that place, we then see the result, that we become part 
of God's kingdom. Verse 3 goes on and says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, you know, many times you may say, what is the kingdom of heaven? What? I've heard the kingdom of God and the kingdom, all these different phrases to this. Well, right off the bat, let me just clarify. As Matthew is speaking here, his letter is actually to Jews. And if you know anything about the Jews, you know that they were very sacred about using God's name, never using God's name, Jehovah. They would never do anything that would even be close to that so that in fear they would never take it in vain or use it out of context. And so Matthew here is writing to the Jews. So when he says the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God, he's just simply replacing a very indirect phrase that means the same thing by saying heaven instead of God. But my friends, it's the same kingdom. It's the same kingdom. He was just respecting his readers. And we find that Jesus spoke often about this kingdom, his kingdom. In fact, if you recall, you remember John the Baptist and the preparatory ministry for Jesus came out and his whole banner, his whole theme was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All the way through Matthew until Matthew 28, the great commission where Jesus, we see over and over and over again, signifying, showing up and telling us what the kingdom of heaven is really all about. Jesus' words really help to give us clarity on what this kingdom is all about. Many people talk about the mystery of this kingdom. But if we just look into Jesus' life, he wants to share and define it for us. He wants to take the, the theater. Ooh, let me get the right word out here. Theatrical. Well, it's not theatrical. Lord Jesus, help me, please. Theoretical, hello. The theoretical stuff, he wants to give us the tangible. He wants to take the theoretical away and give us the tangible. What does this kingdom mean for each one of us today? And so you may recall the Lord's Prayer. We recited it together just a few weeks ago, right here. The very beginning of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 begins this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The statement, your kingdom come, your will be done, really defines a lot of what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom. Because you see, in the Greek, that word is really referring to realm or rule. And so for Jesus, the realm where God's will would be done is the kingdom on earth as in heaven. And I believe by adding the imperative, which we're all well aware of in Matthew 6, 33, when Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And when we put those together, we begin to see that the righteousness of God that is in mankind is really seeks to come from obedient lives that follow in his steps. Faithful behavior that ultimately model what Jesus wants in our lives. So when we look at the scriptures combined, I believe that we see that the kingdom is the realm where the righteous will of God is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Where the righteous will of God is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 4.23 indicates when Jesus came into town and many verses and many sites after that, whenever he would come into a town, he would bring a message and a manifestation that God's righteousness was being done on earth as it was in heaven. And not just through words, but through actions. 
Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So simply put, Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And that's why we refer to him as such, King Jesus. And we'll continue to unpack this in the weeks and months ahead because this is exactly where we're going in the future. Understanding the kingdom in our part as his disciples and bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. We need to be fully aware of God's rule and his reign in our lives as his disciples. It needs to be on our minds each day, guiding and directing our lives as we go. Because even though the kingdom isn't fully consummated until eternity dawns, it is still a present and eternal kingdom. Both sides. And so many times you'll hear us, the now and not yet. But they both represent at the same time the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and our king, Jesus, who takes us there. And you see the rain, if you've been in the body of disciple very long, you know that the reign of Jesus in our lives brings about healing. It gives us peace and righteousness. We surrender those things. We bury those things. And a new life has come about. <clears throat> this is the reign at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We seek God's kingdom reign as we follow Jesus. This kingdom speaks of every day. You see, when I put Jesus first over my finances, when I put him first over my marriage, when I put him first over my job, when he is the centrality of everything in my life, all these other areas are subservient to him as the king. That's when my life will be in proper balance. Instead of these other things taking ownership and kingship, and ruling and leading my life. And in turn, we share that with others who will join into the reign of this one who has all authority and who wants and desires what is best for his disciples. And thus, my friends, that's why we believe that making disciples is the core mission of the church. And that's why we're going in that direction. And that's what we're doing. Disciples who are making disciples. I believe the church... Big C needs a greater understanding of this today. We need to quit establishing our agendas and plans and have his in mind. Because my friends, he is giving us something much more valuable than weapons, than boycotts, than even a vote. He has given us prayer and a responsible lifestyle. We sang about it earlier. Not only in our battles, but all the time we have this prayer as a weapon on our sides. I love the way Peter talks about this in 1 Peter when he says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. People are watching you. They're going to ask you questions. So what it says is we need to live a questionable life. So people are asking us, what the heck's going on? Why do you have so much happiness and hope in your life? Those are the tools that Jesus has given us to use for people to see and to come to him so that his kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. You see, at the core of this kingdom is a king who brings hope and good news, who brings a dangerous message of life transformation. And that kind of message you've experienced, you've shared it. When it's shared and when it's shown, 
brings a love. It brings so much hope. It brings life to so many people in some very scary ways that are so good. And that's when the kingdom is unleashed through you and I, when we are living as kingdom livers, when we are moving forward, experiencing the hope of Christ our King, and in turn giving that to other people. So I believe as we learn to be poor in spirit, we realize that we've been called to an uncommon, dangerous, scary good way of living out God's kingdom, his righteousness through us, his rule and his reign in our lives. And my friends, let me just be honest this morning. It's not natural. <laughs> it's not human. In fact, it's miraculous. And it's authored by Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit in every single one of us who desire that in our lives. It's kingdom living. And it's not natural. It's going to look different. Praise God. It's going to change a world that we live in, the worlds that each of us live in, the people, the relationships. Nothing natural about it. Because you see, when I think about natural, you know the response. If someone pushes me, what's the natural response? I'm going to push them back. If someone tries to be mean or manipulate or get around me, I'm going to do the same thing back. That's natural. That's human. What we're talking about is kingdom living. It isn't natural. Teens, what if you were to actually make your bed or clean up your room? <laughs> Husbands, what if you actually did the dishes or at least loaded the dishwasher? You know, wives, what if you actually bought extra things the next time you're store for your elderly neighbors or friends who don't have as much? What if we as church partners were willing to commit and serve and love on people as they come in this place and wherever we're at every day as we do kingdom good? and show God's righteousness through our lives to people around us. That would be kingdom living. That is a journey, my friends, that we are all on together, and we need each other. But can you only imagine for just a moment what would happen if we all started living that way? If we all started living the kingdom mindset. Now that would be scary good. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children about Aslan, who is the lion, the Christ figure in these chronicles. If you've not seen it before, if you're not aware of who he is, there's a picture of Aslan, the Christ-like figure on the screen. And you can imagine as you look at this animal of power and authority, feeling leery just like the children did and ask, then he isn't safe. And Mr. Beaver gives this great response. Safe. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. Scary good. God, we thank you that you've enabled us and that you've called us, that you've invited us in to your kingdom, to be your disciples. And God, we just want to do that in a way that represents you each day of our lives. We ask for the power of your spirit to allow us to be the people you call us to be, 
the disciples you've called us to be. And so, God, we just ask for that today as we even leave this place that we may be encouraged by your spirit to go and to do those things even today that we know you are calling us to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.